Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. With the Harvey Norman Black Friday sale. Offering the best deals on laptops, TVs, SIM-free phones, kitchen appliances and so much more. Now, sometimes you can try to be clever about these things and sometimes you think, no, don't be clever. Just give listeners what they want in terms of our next guest. That could send Ireland into the quarterfinals of the World Cup. This kick can decide it all. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there! Now, for some generations, uh, one in particular that is immortal and iconic from Italia 90, and for latter generations, it remains very famous from, well, multiple shows where it's played, including, as I mentioned, Reeling in the Years. The Voice is the unmistakable uh, broadcaster and commentator with uh, RTE and formerly with the BBC, and that is George Hamilton, who has written a book appropriately entitled The Nation Holds Its Breath and George is on the line now. Good morning, George. Good morning, Joe, and thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Now, of course, Lyric has great Limerick connections and I know you very much enjoy the work that you do there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, very fond memories of trips to Corn Market Square. I don't always broadcast from there, obviously, because Lyric, though it's based in Limerick, uh, does uh, avail of the RTE studios elsewhere in the country. So I don't have to come to Limerick every weekend to do the shows, but I really am in Limerick in spirit. Uh, and I'm, I'm reminded of that by the, the texts and the emails that I get. That it's, it's, It really is the heart of Lyric FM, is, is Limerick City, and I'm, I'm delighted to be associated with it. I love playing the music. Yeah, and you know, Italia 90, obviously it became entwined with classical music through the three tenors and Nessun Dorman and all of that. But where did your mix of interest in sport and classical music come from? Well, that's an interesting one. Uh, to start with, the sport was my dad. He played centre-forward for an Irish league soccer team called Cliftonville back in the 1930s. Uh, they were an amateur team like Bohemians in Dublin. Uh, they didn't win too many matches when I was a child. Uh, they indeed were having to apply for re-election every season to the Irish league because they finished in the bottom two. So not too many people went to watch them. They played at a ground called Solitude and never was a ground more aptly named because the crowds were never very big, which meant it was a good place to take along a, a young nipper like me uh, to get to know football because my dad loved it and he passed on that love of the game to me. So that's the sport bit taken care of. The music bit then began at around six or seven when my mum, who would spend most of her time around the house singing, she loved to sing. She wanted me to learn to play the piano because I'd have a socially acceptable skill. And so I started learning the piano at six or seven, went through the various grades of piano music. At school, took the music as a subject up until the ordinary level of the GCE, as it was in Belfast, where I went to school. So I was trained in classical music, played in the school orchestra as well. And although I was a normal teenager, you know, going to football matches, playing football and following pop music, somewhere in the background, this love of classical music was growing so that when I became uh, rather more adult and when I went out into the workplace, I suddenly discovered, yep, I can spend the money that I'm earning on classical music because I rather like it. So it, it was an, always an interest of mine that just came to the fore the older I got. And now, now I'm immersed in it as much as in the sport. And I, and I absolutely love it. 
Yeah, and you must help me out with uh, one great George Hamilton rumour that uh, has done the rounds in Limerick over the years. And I was thinking about it recently because I, I was visiting Belfast and I was standing on the side of the pitch at a place called Sullivan School that you'd know and watching oh, yes. watching young guys playing rugby. And there was always this rumour that you were an outstanding young rugby player. Is that true or false? <laughs> I'd have to say it's false. I was an enthusiastic young rugby player who played at fullback uh, and I played my way up as far as the second 15 at the Methodist College in Belfast, which is a big, big rugby school. It'll be familiar to all rugby people all over the country. But I never made it onto the first. I say in my defence that Methody had five teams every Saturday. So if I was on the second for for a time, that meant I can't have been all that bad, but I wouldn't say I was all that good. But it's one great source of pride to me that by getting onto the second, I actually got to play on the hallowed turf where my dad had scored a hat-trick in the Irish League. Because Methody's playing fields, Perry Park, uh, they were owned by uh, the shipyard as a recreational area. And the football team, Queen's Island, which is no more, had as its home ground the very pitch that became uh, the Methodist College first 15 rugby pitch. So my dad was playing soccer on that pitch, and I actually played rugby on that pitch. And that's a source of great pride to me. Now, George Hampton, you were with the BBC um, before your time in RTE. Was it typical or unusual at that point for someone to come from Belfast to RTE in Dublin? Oh, it wasn't the only one by any means. I mean, it, it, it was a kind of a going-to-head office sort of thing. A BBC in Belfast, for which I retain enormous affection, is a regional station, and, and head office for them is London. Uh, RTE is head office in Donnybrook, so it attracted people because of its very status as a, as a standalone broadcaster. I can think of Derek Davis, who came south. Think of Paul Clark, who then returned to Ulster Television. Think of Cyril Smith, who used to read the news. Kate Smith, indeed, herself. You know, there are lots of people who've made the trip south, and, and many still do. So uh, unusual it might have appeared, but it wasn't that unusual in, in, in actual fact. And what was your first gig with RTE then? Well, it was actually a hockey match in College Park when I had agreed to join RTE. Uh, this is this is after the World Cup in 1978. Uh, I, had a, I was poached by RTE, if you like, because they were short a commentator to go to the World Cup in Argentina. Uh, and they made me their number four commentator. And I spent six, four weeks in Mendoza in the west of the country covering six matches. but So that was my first gig for RTE. But my first gig as an RTE person when I was putting pen to paper was actually a hockey match in College Park in the centre of Dublin, which was shot on film. I can't remember who was playing, but it must have been significant enough to have been covered. But it was the, one of the very few hockey matches I had ever done at that stage of my career, though I did subsequently get the opportunity to commentate on the Irish women in, in the World Cup final, which, which was quite something. All right, we're chatting to the broadcaster, George Hamilton, about his book, The Nation Holds Its Breath. And one thing I was reading, and, and I was really struck by, because nowadays you have one commentator or maybe two, or you have two or three co-commentators with you. Was it really the case that in 1990, all those famous games you did, you were the lone voice doing the commentary? Yeah, that's the way it was. Uh, there were occasional forays into two-handed commentaries around that time. But basically, it was, uh, you know, you and your own. At, at Italian 90, we didn't have co-commentators as part of the team on the ground. We had reporters with the Irish team, of course, and we had a, a producer with me, Tom Flanagan, who accompanied me to all the games. But yes, it was just the pair of us, Tom and me, at those games, and I was the one who went on the air. Tom made sure I got on the air. I was the one who went on the air.
Right. Well, George, I hope you live to be 150, but I know you know that uh, when they do your obituary, it'll probably be that clip that I played that it starts with. You know, you're so famous for it. It's one of those things, yeah, and, and you'd never believe it at, at the time because there's so many other things going on in your mind, uh, and you are broadcasting after all. That's why you're there. You're not there to come out with with an immortal line that's going to live on for 30-odd years and be repeated and come back again and again and again. It's just that I, I think that the point of, of having a commentator on a television match is to add a third dimension to the two-dimensional picture. So if, if you bear in mind that the picture has to lead at all times and that the commentator should be reacting to the picture and not be reacting to something else or, or going off on a riff or giving you a ream after ream of statistics that have no actual relevance to the game that's taking place. So less is more in terms of television commentary. I often say on the radio it's knowing what to say because it's you and a blank page. On television, because the picture is there, it's knowing when to say it. And I think that that, that clip that you played of The Nation Holds His Breath, that is knowing what to say and when to say it. You cannot script a line like that. It will come to you because of what has gone before in the context of the match. And you just hope that when the moment arrives that you have it within you to come up with the, the short phrase that will indeed deliver the, the moment, the memorable moment that will match the picture because it's all about matching the picture. It's not led by the commentary in the way that radio commentary is. And George, remind us of the time that uh, you had a, a bottle of sparkling wine <laughs> poured over your head and by whom? Yeah, well, that was uh, that very same day. Tom and I, the, the way the, the, the schedule had been drawn up, Tom and I were in Milan the night before doing uh, West Germany and uh, Holland in the other uh, half of the uh, round of 16 knockout stage of the World Cup. And the plan was we would then drive down to Genoa, uh, do the match, and then drive back to Milan. Uh, but because it was Ireland in the match and the chance of a quarterfinal appearance in the World Cup, Tom and I decided we'd pack a little overnight bag and we'd drive down to Genoa, find ourselves a pensione and stay the night. And on the way out of Milan, we thought, well, if we're going to be staying the night and there's going to be a party, we really need some fizz to accompany it. So nine in the morning on the way out of Milan, on the way to the Tangentiale and the Autostrada, we stopped the Ford Sierra and we went into a supermarket and we bought a bottle of Asti Superfumante. And it made the journey to Genoa with us in the boot of the Sierra on a searingly hot Italian day. <laughs> we, we arrived at lunchtime, we checked into a little pensione, and we retrieved the bottle of uh, fizz and we put it in my satchel. And it went to the stadium with us. Now, it's bad enough that we had booze with us because all the match venue cities were dry on match day. But you shouldn't have had a bottle, let alone a bottle with alcohol in it, in the stadium. But somehow we managed to smuggle it in. And it sat at my feet through the 90 minutes of not very distinguished football and the 30 minutes of extra time that followed. And then the penalty shootout. And then it fell to me to go and interview the key participants. And that involved leaving the commentary position in the grandstand going to ground level and then into the basement and through a tunnel under the pitch and up the other side into the little interview room where I would be joined by David O'Leary and Packy Bonner, the two Irish heroes of the hour. Now, bear in mind, this bottle of Asti Spumanti began the day in the fridge in Milan and was ending the day having spent most of the day in the boot of the car and in the heat of the afternoon and is now in my hand and I'm about to pour it into little plastic cups. And I'm wearing this magnificent, I say magnificent, it was all the rage at the time, a Hawaii Five-O kind of shirt because it was hot weather. And I, oh, we remember I it, George. We remember it. it. <laughs> and, and, and anyway, we uh, we poured the champagne or the, the Asti saying, we have something to celebrate, lads. Please, please toast your success. So the pair of them did. And uh, bear in mind, they've gone through the 120 minutes and the penalty shooter in the searing heat outside. The last thing they need is sparkling vinegar, which is what it turned out to taste like. Uh, so they took one sip. 
Then one looked at the other and they promptly poured it, the pair of them, Packy Bonner, David O'Leary, over my head, live on TV. <laughs> a day you'd never forget. <laughs> never and, forget. And George, we could talk about your amazing career and the many other things that you've done, but I'm just wondering about Italian 90. Um, and, and, and clearly you were there, and uh, you know, as Con Hoolan famously said, yeah. I, I missed it because I was there. But, but yes. and, and with Jack passing away recently and all of that, I mean, what are your reflections on the particular magic of that time? It was an era uh, that there will, there, will, there will never be the like of it again. Uh, Ireland, a young country, was emerging uh, like, like out of the, the chrysalis and in, into the light blinking. And this Englishman, this World Cup winner, came along and decided to do something different with the football team to which he'd been appointed. And he had a, a, a modicum of good fortune in the first campaign in that Scotland, winning that game in Bulgaria, sent Ireland to West Germany and Euro 88. And that was like the bursting of a dam because all of a sudden, wow, we're on the international stage in our green shirts and we can show we can party and enjoy ourselves. So when the World Cup uh, qualification followed, that was the moment, Italia 90, uh, that everybody bought into this. This is the country on show to the world the most important competition in the world's most important sport, and Ireland is actually there. And not only that, but it's on a roller coaster that gets to the quarterfinals, the last eight in the world. 1992, they missed out on Sweden, and I think they could have won that tournament if they made it there because there were only eight teams in that European Championship. Then they're back at the World Cup in the USA, which gets such prominence because the first match is against Italy and New York, of all places, the Italian-Irish city. And the fans are there, and it's all green. The green outweighs the blue in the stadium and Giant Stadium. So that's 94. And, of course, then it all kind of ended Sadly, in that playoff at Anfield in December 1995, when the Dutch won their way to Euro 96, and Jack and Morris Tedders waved their farewell to the Anfield Road End, which was where the Irish fans were, were collected. It was 10 years, the best part of 10 years, uh, that matched a period in Irish social history when the country was emerging into something that it had never been before. It was, it was an, almost like an idea whose time had come the international football team was now ready to take its place on the big stage. And it enjoyed that time, that almost 10 years. And the fact that it was almost 10 years, symbolically, like a decade, it was, it was just perfect. Yeah. I, I don't think we'll ever see quite the like of it again because the first time is always the best time. And the first time that Ireland achieved something, which was under Jack Chardon, was a glorious golden era for Irish international sport in general. The rugby team is doing as proud now, but they're on a different part of the park, so to speak. The soccer end of it, the social end of it, I don't think we'll see anything quite like it yeah. again. That was a magical, magical, magical time. Uh, well, George Hamilton's memoir is The Nation Holds Its Breath uh, in hardback and available in all good bookstores, as they say. Uh, George, great to chat to you and uh, I wish you good health. I know you had challenges uh, on that front, but you're, you, you sound like you're raring to go again, which is brilliant. <laughs> Stop, Joe. No, I'm still on the go. Thank you very much. We're going to to play this as a tribute to you, but as you say, as a tribute to the era, and uh, lots of people will remember it. Thanks, George. Thank you, Joe. Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. With the Harvey Norman Black Friday sale. Offering the best deals on laptops, TVs, SIM-free phones, kitchen appliances, and so much more. 